that what the Bible teaches in response to the new morality is the ground of all morality is the character of God. God has the rightful authority to prescribe our moral actions, and God has revealed that standard for human behavior in His objective, universal, eternal moral law. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you believe that the grounds for all morality, all truth, reside in the attributes and character of God? And if so, doesn't that mean that all truth and morality is unchangeable? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing his current series with part six of Trending Versus Truth. Last time, Tom introduced us to the root of moral relativism and its impact throughout recent history. Today, you'll discover seven practical biblical responses to the claims of moral relativism and how to respond to those who reject biblical truth. And think about your own life. How have you responded to the lure of moral relativism? Are you fully submitted to the authority of God in your life? Keep all that in mind as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. God is so patient, slow to anger. He takes so much. I can tell you this, if I were God, and if you were God, we would have acted much sooner to end man's insolence. But God is so incredibly patient. But don't mistake patience for apathy and indifference. Someday, there's divine wrath. In the case of Israel, there's the judgment that's promised here and an abandonment of his people. And you remember in Romans 1, the same thing happens with pagans. They don't want to have anything to do with God, so what does God do? Three times it says God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to their sin. This is why we are where we are, folks. The same moral relativism that was present in ancient Israel is present today, verse 20, and it's there because of the same reasons as it was then. Those represent the source, the spiritual foundations of our moral relativism. Now that brings us to the positive, the biblical correction. The biblical correction, what is the truth? What does the Bible say? I told you when I began the series, I don't want to spend the whole summer talking about what we're against. We need to talk about what we're against. But I also want to celebrate what Scripture teaches, what we can champion and be far. And here we go. Here's the biblical correction. Always we come back to what does the Bible say? In this case, what does the Bible say about morality? And we can reduce what the Bible teaches about morality to one simple sentence. God, our Creator, has revealed to us an objective, universal, eternal moral law. God affirms certain moral behaviors by saying, you shall. And he denies other moral behaviors by saying, you shall not. Now, let's consider this universal, eternal moral law. First of all, and this is, this is the key one, the ground of all morality is the character of God. The ground of all morality is the character of God. The Bible teaches that God's moral law found, finds its foundation deep in God's person. In an attribute, the Bible calls his holiness. Now, I've explained this before, but for those of you who are newer, holiness is used of God in the Scripture in two related but distinct ways. 
one expression of God's holiness is that He is transcendent in His majesty. He's so exalted in His majesty. He's so awesome that He is separate or distinct from everything else in the universe. God doesn't have a category. He's the only one in His category. This stresses His separateness from us as creatures. He is exalted beyond our imagination. That's why you have verses throughout Scripture that say, you are holy, and then immediately it says, there's no one like you. There's no one like you. There's no one like you. A second use of this group of words related to holiness tell us that God is transcendent in His moral purity. In His moral purity. Holiness describes not only His separateness from us as creatures, but also from us as sinners. And Scripture uses the same word groups for both of these concepts. He is transcendent in His moral purity. Robert Raymond writes this, just as He as the Creator is transcendently separate from men as creatures, so also He is ethically separate from them as sinners. He is morally pure. Listen to this. Infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably with regard to His character, His thoughts, and His actions. There is not the slightest taint of evil desire, impure motive, or unholy inclination about Him. God is utterly separate from evil and sin. Now, let's admit that we have a hard time getting our minds around that. Many years ago, when I was still living in Mobile, I visited a home there on visitation where a family lived in absolute squalor and filth. I remember going to this home, and I, I was, they made a little place for me to sit on the couch, and I sat down on the couch, and the woman was sitting on the couch opposite me, and behind her was the kitchen, and it was clear and obvious. She sat with her back to the kitchen, and as I looked past her, I saw a year's worth of dirty dishes stacked feet high on every available inch of the kitchen counters. And then as we talked, I watched in the full light of the, the lights of that room, I watched dozens of roaches crawl all over those dirty stacks of dishes. She didn't seem to notice at all. To her, everything seemed perfectly fine, but I couldn't imagine how she could live like that. In the same way, folks, it's hard for us to grasp the concept of God's holiness. We have learned to live with our filth. We have learned to live with unholiness and to look on it as natural and normal and expected. As Tozer says, we must allow the Scripture to cut a new channel through the desert of our minds. Burkhoff describes this aspect of God's holiness like this. It is that perfection of God in virtue of which He eternally wills and maintains His own moral excellence, abhors sin, and demands purity in His moral creatures. You see, holy is the way God is. God doesn't abide by the standard. He is the standard. God's moral norms for us are simply expressions of who He is. It is consistent with His own character. That's why God's moral law is eternal, because He is and unchanging. He's just being consistent with who He is. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, 
say, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Therefore, you hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. Now, I've taught you this before, but let me just remind you that love and hate are not mutually exclusive. You can both love someone and hate them at the same time. George Washington with his friend Benedict Arnold is the perfect example. Benedict Arnold was his longtime friend. He loved him. But when he learned of his treason, he hated him for his treason. God does love the sinner. Don't ever forget that. But don't ever forget that God hates the sinner as well. You hate all who do iniquity. Turn to Psalm, Psalm 11, and you see this principle born out here. Psalm 11, verse 4, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous and the wicked. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Here's why. Notice the four. Here's here's the reason. Don't miss the logic. The Lord is righteous. Therefore, he loves righteousness. Therefore, the upright will behold his face. Do you get it? Based on who he is, he is holy. He is righteous. Therefore, he loves righteousness. Therefore, he loves those who love righteousness. And he hates those who don't. This is God's holy character. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we heard from the Messiah and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God's moral holiness is both negative and positive. Not only is He separate from all evil, but He is the personification of moral excellence and ethical perfection. So the ground of all morality is the character of God. The Bible teaches, secondly, that as our Creator, God has the rightful authority to prescribe our moral actions. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Listen to this, the world and all who dwell in it. You realize that every person on this globe belongs to God? He's the owner of every person. He made them. He sustains them. He gives them everything they have. First Chronicles 29, 11, yours, O Lord, is indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, and you exalt yourself as head over all. You follow the logic there? Because everything on earth belongs to God. He has the dominion, the right to rule and to command. And what does God command of mankind, of human beings on this planet? Well, I had a whole list in my notes, but I cut them for time. Let me give you one. Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God demands that humanity reflect his own moral character. That's the moral standard. Number three, God has revealed the standard for human behavior in his objective, universal, eternal moral law. God's own moral character and the binding laws that govern our moral choices, he's made them known to us. And he's made, known, he's made them known to us in three ways. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've seen this before. But he's made known to us his own moral law, first of all, in the conscience. 
Just glance at Romans chapter 2. I touched on this recently in our study, but Romans chapter 2, verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law themselves. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, pagans don't have the Bible. They don't have God's Word. But God planted in their hearts the work of the law, the essential fact that there is a moral standard and they're responsible to keep it. They know that. Oh, it's distorted because of the fall, but it's there. It's in the heart. God's revealed it to them in the conscience. Secondly, he's revealed it in the Scripture. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Romans 2. For all who have sinned without having a written copy of God's Word will perish without the law. In other words, they're still going to be judged. They're going to be judged by the law that's written in the heart. All who have sinned under the law, that is, all of those who have a copy of God's Word, will be judged by that law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In other words, the standard is perfect obedience to God's written Word. That's where the moral code is laid out. Of course, that moral code, the moral law of God, is outlined in the Ten Commandments. Think of the Ten Commandments like like an outline of the rest of God's law, or like hooks on which the rest of the commands hang. And Jesus summarized God's entire moral requirements of man in two commandments. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. So God has revealed it in his word. He's also revealed his moral law in Christ. The complete revelation of God's moral character came to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 1.18, he has explained God. Literally, he has exegeted God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. So God has revealed his moral law in conscience, in the Scripture, and in Christ. It is universal. It's for every person and every culture. It's eternal because it's based on the character of God. God doesn't change. Folks, it will never be right to have any other gods before the one true God. It will, be, it will never be right to make a graven image, to murder, to commit the sexual sins that God forbids, or to lie. In fact, in Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15, John tells us that God's moral law will still be there, still be in force, in the new heavens and the new earth. So what the Bible teaches in response to the new morality is the ground of all morality is the character of God. God has the rightful authority to prescribe our moral actions, and God has revealed that standard for human behavior in His objective, universal, eternal moral law. A fourth biblical correction is that God demands perfect obedience to His law, and His justice requires he judge every person and punish every violation. I wish I had time to take you to Romans 2. But in Romans 2, he's talking to the Jewish people who have the written law. And he says to them, listen, it doesn't do you any good to have it if you don't keep it. And he goes on to say in verse 6 of Romans 2, that he will render to each person according to his deeds. By what standard? By the law by what God has revealed of his expectations. And he will judge every person and punish every violation. I hate to tell you this. If you think you're getting to heaven 
based on your good works, I need to say to you, God doesn't grade on a curve. You shall be holy as I am holy. That's the only way you earn your way into heaven, and that's not going to happen. It hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen. So your only hope is the next point, number five. God requires, and I should have added, and accepts the perfect sacrifice to forgive violations of his moral law. God requires and accepts the perfect sacrifice to forgive violations of his moral law. You see, we were supposed to keep it perfectly, and we, we haven't. I haven't, you haven't. In fact, we failed miserably. I hate to tell you this, but you haven't even kept God's law a single second of your life. You say, wait a minute. That seems like an overstatement. Okay, here's the standard. How many moments of your life have you loved God perfectly with all your heart? That's what I thought. How many moments of your life have you loved your neighbor as yourself with the right motive, God's glory and the good of your neighbor, not tainted with some selfishness? That's what I thought too. So it's not going to happen. Your only hope is the gospel. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Somebody has to pay. Who paid? I love 1 Peter 2.24. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. God demands a perfect sacrifice, and he accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Your only hope of being right with God, of ever seeing God, and of not spending eternity separated from him in a place Jesus called hell, a place of suffering where you will get what you have earned. The only hope any of us have is Christ. Number six, God demands that those he has forgiven. Once he forgives us by grace alone through the work of Christ alone, God demands that those he has forgiven, now his children, seek to obey his moral law. It doesn't go away. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to what end? That we would be holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says to believers, It is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So you don't get right with God by your holiness. You can never deliver. But having been forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ, God still expects you to walk in holiness. That's the biblical correction to our cultural moral collapse. Very briefly, there's one final fact about moral relativism we need to examine, and that is the practical ramifications. Why does it matter? Why have I spent the time to teach this to you this morning? Two reasons. Number one, we need to remember that having rejected God's moral law, unbelievers can only offer flawed and fractured moral viewpoints. Do you understand this? How foolish is it for Christians who want to think about the moral issues of our times instead of opening up their Bibles to open up their computer and look on the internet? Jesus, to borrow his description of the Pharisees, don't look to the spiritually blind to serve as your moral guide. Matthew 15, 13, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they will both fall into a pit. It's foolish for you to follow the moral direction of people who are spiritually dead and spiritually blind. Number two, as believers, 
we must reject all traces of our culture's moral relativism. Now, I don't have time to develop this. I'm just going to give you the list. But here are some ways that I think Christians have been subtly affected by this new morality that I just warned you about. Number one, don't become so accustomed to the new morality that you're no longer tormented by it. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of the men around him. Listen to this. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Is that how your own soul feels with the sins against God that permeate our culture? Number two, don't focus so much on Jesus' love and compassion toward the sinner, which is true and we need to focus on, but don't focus on it so much that you ignore his calls to repentance and his warnings about the coming wrath. Jesus, who loved the sinner, said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will perish. That was his message repeatedly to sinners. Number three, don't misunderstand Jesus' attacks on unbelieving Pharisees and their legalism as a rebuke on believers who speak out against biblical sins in the culture. Now listen, there are a lot of believers who do it very poorly. I'm not suggesting that a lack of graciousness is justified. I'm just saying be careful. The, the Pharisees were false teachers, and Jesus calls them in Matthew 23, 15, sons of hell. They're not the same as believers who are not being careful and gracious. Number four, don't confuse the moral culpability of sin before God with the equivalent evil of every sin. You see, all sins are equally damning apart from saving grace, but not all sins are equally evil in the sight of God. R.C. Sproul writes, there is a difference between lesser sins and gross and heinous sins. You say, is that biblical? Absolutely. Here are some examples. Matthew 5, 19, Jesus speaks of the least of the commandments. Matthew 23, 23, he speaks of the weightier provisions of the law. John 19, 11, he talks about the greater sin. Now, that's a different message for a different time where we could develop that, but you just need to be careful. Number five, don't confuse love for and graciousness towards sinful people, which we must show, and I'm going to deal with that a little more next week. Don't confuse that with what we must not show, and that is any acceptance of their sinful choices. I've been studying John, or excuse me, uh, Psalm 15, sort of on my own, just for my own soul, and talking about the righteous person. It says this in Psalm 15:4, "In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but honors he honors those who fear the Lord." Does that describe you? Folks, we need to be so careful. We live in dangerous, perilous times. Moral relativism is all around us. And it's so much a part of the air we breathe that like a fish, sometimes I'm not afraid we even know we're wet. But that's not God's way. He is the standard. And He has revealed His standard. And He expects His people not to embrace the moral relativism of their culture, but His eternal moral law. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of Trending Versus Truth. Join us again next time for part seven, won't you? As Tom Pennington once again takes us to God's Word. 
Well, Tom, how might you encourage those listeners who are finding it difficult to accept biblical truth over cultural morality? You know, friend, I think we all find ourselves at times having embraced something of the world's or the culture's perspective unknowingly, unwittingly. And then when that's addressed or confronted by the Word of God, we have a choice about how we're going to respond. And I would just encourage you, as I have to encourage myself when that happens, let's come back and say, what does the Bible say? Let's be humble enough to say, we're going to be like the Bereans. We're going to see what the Scriptures say. And if this is what the Scripture teaches, then even if it cuts against my previously held ideas and convictions, I'm going to bring my own thinking in line with what the Scripture says. That's what we all have to do. That's what I have to do. It's what I encourage you to do as we journey together to see what the Scriptures teach about these difficult issues. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.